I'd uh, like to begin this evening by uh, appreciating um, all of your efforts today. Um, for many of you, uh, this is the first time that you've done something like this, that you've been to uh, a silent retreat or practice meditation so intensely. And uh, I find it very inspiring, to be honest. And um, particularly how, how quickly it seems to me that people get a sense of what this is about, how quickly they value it, uh, how quickly um, many of you have, have found this a useful thing to do and engage with it so wholeheartedly. And the theme of our weekend is seeing clearly and acting wisely. So in many ways we can say this is what the practice has been dedicated to. This is the the kind of sense of purpose or the intention underlying all of the things we've been doing. Sitting and walking meditation and the general sense of being aware, of being here, of being present throughout all of the activities throughout the day. And uh, I'd like to begin to this evening, though, really by talking about some of the things that may seem to obscure our clear seeing, some of the things that can sometimes seem to get in our way. Uh, and I want to look at those in lots of different ways. So on the one hand, looking at them in terms of, uh, as they're traditionally described, the hindrances, um, but also seeing some of the stories that they tell us, these hindrances, some of the views and beliefs that they reinforce and that kind of bring these things into being. And also maybe to reflect a little bit even on that very language, the language of hindrance, the language of something that's in the way, that to many of us automatically brings up... uh, the quite reasonable response, well, if this is in my way, I better get rid of it. (laughs) And how do I get rid of it? And what do I need to do? And what kind of techniques uh, should I apply in order to achieve that end? Um, And that's also something we can very much question. You know, is that a helpful way to look at it? Is that a helpful way to to be with different aspects of our experience? That there are these bits we want and these bits we don't want. And, you know, learning particular methods and techniques to achieve our preconceived goal. So we can begin to kind of question some of those things too. But as I said, traditionally there are these uh, patterns called the the hindrances. And when I talk about these, there are two things I always begin with, and they're very, very helpful things. Um, The first thing is that these things don't just turn up um, in meditation. Uh, These are there in the rest of our lives. But when we sit to be still, when we sit uh, to be aware, and there's not so much going on, then these things really show up. In other words, we're shining a light on patterns that are already around for us. It's not just in meditation that we start to want things or not want things, or we start to feel lost in a sense of drowsiness, or very restless, or we're not sure about what we're doing. I mean, these are patterns that can very much um, drive a lot of the ways that we speak and think and act in our lives. 
So they're kind of there. So please, uh, you know, be be reassured in a way. These things haven't just turned up because you're doing meditation, and somehow this is what meditation does. <laughs> it is it's bringing to light these patterns that are kind of semi-conscious in our lives. And the other thing that is so helpful, and we say this again and again, but it's so helpful just to really let this sink in, that these are patterns that the mind does to really normalize these things. These are really normal things to happen. This is one of the the reasons why we have the group interviews. So you can hear, oh, that person's having that experience, or this person's having something a bit similar to the thing I had the other day. And already that's beginning to change the relationship to these things so much, rather than this is me and there's some aspect of me that is uncomfortable and difficult and you know, maybe it's always been there, maybe it's going to be there uh, forever. You know, how am I going to kind of get rid of it? There's a whole kind of story about who I am, what my deficiencies are, um, and can be a whole lot of extra difficulty and struggle added to these patterns when we see them as part of some identity, really. Yeah. So already to acknowledge that these are human patterns is the beginning of um, a liberating way of responding to them. I mean, I love the fact this list that we're going to go through is very roughly two and a half thousand years old uh, and was developed in India. So a different time and place to where we are now. And yet it seemed to me that people... Uh, it seemed to be that people at that time had these exact same patterns. And we can think, you know, oh, this must be purely because of the stress of modern life or something that happened to me in my childhood that's made me like this or, you know, that particular incident that's shaped this. But these are patterns that have been around. These are human patterns. And again, that sense of not taking them so personally when we, when we recognise that is very, very helpful. So as I said, I want to um, talk about these hindrances also in terms of the stories that they tell us. Because I think in some way each one kind of weaves a little story, has its own little version of events, a version of what we need or a version of um, who we are. And the views and beliefs that kind of give rise to them, reinforce them and make them seem more solid. Uh, The first of these patterns is uh, sense-desire or craving. Basically what this means is uh, a kind of addictive sense of wanting something. A kind of um, insistent feeling that what's here is not okay and that I need something different, something better, something else, something improved, you know, the latest version. That yeah. what's here is not somehow enough. There needs to be more and different and better. I mean, maybe it's the, uh, the strongest example, perhaps, for many of us, but it seems to me a real taste of this is when you're uh, infatuated with someone, when we're infatuated with a person. Um, 
you know how strong that feeling can be. I mean, you go into a room when they're not there, and basically, just the room is. If this doesn't sound too paradoxical, the room is full of their absence. And the only thing is that this person isn't there. Um, I mean, I don't know if you had these experiences. You send someone a text message or phone them up, and it's been ten minutes and they still haven't texted back, and and there's so much kind of investment in that and as if this the text that comes through or the return phone call is going to deliver so much and it's it's strange isn't it because you know on one level we know that there you know so there are lots of people in the world um perhaps it was quite accidental that we met this person in the first place and maybe on an intellectual level we can't quite think my complete well-being is dependent on this one individual. It kind of doesn't make sense. Yet in our, in our kind of guts and feelings, it can feel so strong as if that's true. So you see, there's a sense that the story it's telling us is um, my ultimate well-being. And I think the ultimate really is what really brings in the kind of deluded part. My ultimate well-being is dependent on being with this person. But the story of craving is really the story of I need, I need, I need this. And of course, uh, you know, we can get this with uh, things, we can get this shopping, you know, walk past a nice shop and you see something and that obviously can very easily trigger this kind of thing. Uh, It might be to do with particular experiences. We might want to, you know... Some kind of experience that we think we need or some um, place we want to go. It might be to do with travel. I certainly uh, have kind of seen this pattern too, that even uh, those of us who are quite perhaps self-consciously not materialistic, and you know, not necessarily so caught up in this pattern with uh, the latest consumer goods, but it can definitely be there with a whole lot of travel experiences which become like a kind of collection and they're all kind of going on the shelf. um, So it's a similar pattern that can be around. So the story there really is what's here isn't enough. There's something missing. There's fundamentally something missing. And my well-being is dependent on this thing, and it becomes very specific. It's a kind of craving story. So seeing clearly is in many ways beginning to deconstruct those stories. You know, is that true? Is any of that true? One way to work with many of these patterns is to, to bring in the opposite energy. Bring in the opposite energy. So if craving is very much um, about what's, what's missing, that I want, we can deliberately bring to mind uh, appreciation. What is here? We can deliberately look for things that, where we can be content and look for things to appreciate and to... To find the joy in what is here. To find the joy in what is here. Some of you mentioned today in the group interviews of discovering the simple pleasures on retreats. 
And again, having an eye for those simple pleasures, those simple joys, can I think really um, undermine some of the more elaborate stories of craving. You know, we begin to see this is this is enough. It's enough to walk, and it's enough to sit, and it's really a rich experience to have a, you know, I just have a nice cup of tea and just sit with that. And we can begin to see how much the richness of experience is so much to do with the quality of attention that we bring to it as opposed to the particular thing that we're doing. So I just can give you an example of that actually. Uh, um, when I was doing a long retreat here at one stage and I had the job of um, taking out the kind of waste food I don't know if those of you have been doing washing up, but you, you put the food in a bucket and things, and somebody has the job of coming along and emptying those and putting them in, in uh, the black plastic bags and taking them out and things. But I remember, you know, I've been doing a lot of sitting and was really enjoying the practice. And just at one stage, just being there with this kind of bucket and, oh, you know, there's this waste food, and it's kind of quite, almost quite lovingly, really. You know, kind of putting this in the black bag, and this felt okay. This was a sort of rich experience, and then, you know, could just be there tying the tying the bag up and present as I sort of walk slowly out to take the thing outside. And I think I always remember that because, of course, this is a kind of paradigm experience of something we don't want to do. You know, taking the rubbish out, dealing with waste food this is a horrible thing. You know, um, but with that quality of attention. When that was there, even the thing that is on the face of it a bit unpleasant, it just feels this fine. So again, again, you can turn it around too and think of all the things that we might crave sometimes. Um, So it might be a a wonderful holiday in somewhere hot and sunny and palm trees. (laughs) Lovely kind of image of all of that. But too, you can imagine there, if, you, if in that situation and the mind is full of craving, it can't take it in, it can't drink it in. So the, the thing just can't deliver for us. The beautiful place can't deliver unless we're there to be receptive. Yeah. So as we begin to investigate this and look at this, we begin to see the and touch into this sense I was speaking about earlier, that of a basic okayness. A basic okayness. And then the complex running about after this and that can begin to settle down. So if the first of these uh, patterns is about wanting, craving, Going after something. The second is about not wanting. If only this wasn't present. So again, today it's very likely that uh, many, many, many of you, and I know know, you've obviously confirmed this in the interviews too, but have painful experiences in the body, sitting in uh, meditation for this length of time. It can also be, in our life, of course, painful situations, things that we don't want, people that we find difficult, family members that stress us out, pressures of 
you know, work or college or whatever it is. Painful, difficult things. And we think, if only this wasn't there, if only I could get rid of this, then everything would be okay. And in some ways this can be really just the opposite of the first one. The first one saying, if I had this, wow, ultimate peace of mind. And the aversion can sometimes say, if only this were, this were absent, then, then everything would be so lovely. And that's why it's very liberating, even what may seem like a fairly trivial thing to do in some ways. You know, if we have, say, a pain in the knee, where there's some discomfort, again, not talking about excruciating pain, but some discomfort. If we can begin to breathe into that, to be with that, to see that there's on the one hand the unpleasantness of the pain, and then how that's compounded with the not wanting, shouldn't be here, how do I get rid of it? The extra layer of struggle and suffering we can build around it. And when we can just be with that, okay, it's just an unpleasant sensation, just to be with that. Again, it gives us confidence. You see how this applies to everything unpleasant in our life. The same thing. Can we just be in that way? And of course, in the same way that in the sitting practice, it's sometimes a wise thing to do to realize that the time for sitting with the pain in the knee has passed and we need to mindfully move. <laughs> and so too with life. Yeah. So this is not a... It's not a prescription of being totally passive and all kinds of pains and difficulties and saying never never do anything or never make any changes. But it's just saying those things come from a place of wisdom rather than a place of immediately reacting. At other times... In meditation and in life we can feel very restless. So this is the third of these patterns. So we can't settle. The mind jumps from one thing to the next. The body wants to move and shift. There's a feeling that, um, yeah, just not quite being at ease, not quite being at home. And again, this uh, skillful means really of the opposite energy, if you like, or the opposite thing, sometimes doing the opposite of what the hindrance is saying is very, very useful. So if there's a lot of restlessness, the intention just to be still. Just to be still. Can I be still with it? And there's a lot of you know stuff saying move, shuffle, shift. Keep going, keep going, keep going. But we know, I mean, perhaps, you know, you've had this when you're trying to get to sleep sometimes. If you keep tossing and turning and turning this way and that way, then it kind of just feeds the whole pattern. Whereas that intention to be still can allow it to to calm and settle. Other times we have what's sometimes called sloth and torpor or sleepiness and drowsiness. We just feel very uh, lacking in energy. Yeah, at times we're just exhausted with the things that we're doing in life, the busy lives we have, the trying to p- pack so many things in. 
And this is just the, the kind of result that's here. And of course when it's like that, it's really important to find ways to rest deeply. And at other times this can be more of a, of a sort of mental habit in a way. A habit that can kick in when perhaps we feel things are a little bit boring. Yeah? Remember I was saying perhaps all of these, each hindrance tells a different story. Sometimes the drowsiness one can say, there's nothing interesting going on, this is boring. I'm going to kind of switch off. And perhaps this can be a reaction to being so stimulated. You know, we have so many things that catch our eye, so many things we can watch on TV or look at on the internet or so many friends we can phone or so many books we can read. Many, 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 many lifetimes of entertainment these days are just at our fingertips. <laughs> you know, so we constantly stimulated in that way. Even watch, uh, if you, of course, watch uh, TV or films carefully as well. Just, just look how many times they cut the, cut the shot from one thing to the next. And depending on the diff- particular genre, it can be amazing. You know, several times a second you're just being shown something different. So then sometimes when you come here and you've got, you know, a fairly neutral carpet <laughs> and fairly neutral walls and fairly neutral ceiling, and there's not a lot going on, then we can just, we kind of switch off or, you know, tune out. So that's worth working with too. You know, can we stay present when things are more neutral? Because neutrality in many ways is very close to peace, very peaceful. You're not being thrown around so much by liking and disliking. I'm going to talk more about the the different ways of of working with these hindrances, but hopefully you've already begun to see that in many ways this is an art rather than a prescribed technique. It really isn't like, you know, you have situation A comes up, apply technique B, get result C. It just, this is not really the model that, that kind of works with this. So, with the sleepiness and drowsiness, for instance, there are actually two things that may sound really quite opposite, but at different times, different things can be appropriate. So sometimes we can somehow, again, you bring in the opposite energy. If there's a drowsiness, we can open the eyes or put a bit more effort into the posture, you know, make the back a little bit more upright, perhaps, or a slightly more formal posture with the hands. Or we might uh, bring to mind why we practice to bring some energy in there. So that in a way is uh, bringing in some of the opposite quality. But at other times, it's much more useful just to, to sort of be with uh, sleepiness. So not to get into a whole strategy about how to, how to wake myself up, but just what's that like to you know, feel the sleepiness? Can I be with the drowsiness? Can I be interested in the boredom? <laughs> yeah, see what's going on there. Uh, 
And the final one of these is uh, called doubt. And doubt in this sense is quite different from a deep and wise and intelligent questioning investigation. That's a really positive quality, really helpful thing. But doubt, when it manifests as a hindrance, is a bit more unanswerable and can really, if it really grabs hold of us, can be quite undermining. So it says, you know, I'm no good. I'm not going to be any good at this. Uh, I've done this for such and such a time. This is not for me. You know, this may be for other people. Or this is the wrong kind of practice or um, the wrong kind of teacher or the wrong kind of place. Um, And it can it can stop us really giving ourselves to something, giving ourselves to something. So a sense of faith and commitment can really help working with this. But this is not kind of signing your life away. <laughs> I would say certainly, you know, while you're here to do this practice, can you give yourself fully to it this weekend, and then see what you see what you discover. Or when you're sitting at home, you can think, can I give myself fully to this practice? You know, for this session. Because if we don't really give ourselves fully to it, then we, we never really know. It's like, you know, if you just dip your toe into a million and one things, you're never really going to experience them, you know. Go to a couple of Tai Chi classes, and oh, that wasn't for me, and then a couple of yoga classes, and moved on from that, and meditation for a couple of hours and you know but we never really get to taste any of these things when doubt is there in that way So I want to reflect a little bit more on our kind of attitude as a whole to all of these these patterns. And I think I mentioned, I'm again just beginning to bring to mind what the very labelling of them as hindrances does. And it can, for many people, bring up this view that I am a person, I am a person with these negative qualities, that I need to get rid of. Um, And really this, generally speaking, is is not a helpful way to think about them, not a helpful way to think about the hindrances, not a a helpful way to practice. I'm a person with these things that I need to get rid of. The I'm a person bit already is beginning to identify with them, rather than seeing them as these patterns. Just patterns that have arisen and the patterns that will pass. We start to see them as me, aspects of me. We start to take them personally. I'm an angry person, I'm an addictive person, I'm a lazy person. You know, all this kind of self-judgment around it. So rather than I am a person with these things, just see them as patterns passing through. And again, you know, again, it seems to make, make sense, doesn't it? If these are called hindrances, therefore they need to be got rid of. <laughs> but what we discover in meditation is that very attitude 
of this is my enemy. This is some kind of solid enemy here. This is some sort of real and solid thing that is genuinely blocking my path or progress. It's that very view that keeps the thing so solid. And one of the things that's incredibly helpful with these hindrances is to recognize they're actually really, really insubstantial. Insubstantial. Rather than a, you know, a solid enemy. So this is why in many ways we call this practice a practice of waking up. Waking up out of a, out of a dream. And part of that dreamlike quality is to take these things that are just passing through to be so real, to be us. Either something that we want to hold on to or something we want to destroy. And this shift in view is the really liberating thing. Again, I think we were talking about it a bit earlier in, in one of the groups, really. But if there's a, a pattern and you think, okay, there's a pattern here, how do I work with this? And then maybe you have three or four what are kind of seen as good days. Yeah, I've had some good days. It hasn't come up for three or four days. But then it's almost like there's a, there's a kind of tension. If it comes back again, I'm back to where I started. That's what I mean. If, if that, that kind of view underlies it there. And who knows, it may disappear for 40 or 50 years. But what happens then? It pops up again. But if the view is still there, that this is a solid, substantial enemy, then it's, oh, you know, 50 years of practice and it, <laughs> it's turned up again. So a much more different view would be, you know, can we get to the place where it's, it's not really such a big deal whether it arises or not. It's not really such a big deal. We can be with it if it's here. can work with it. And then, you know, sometimes it's not there. We're not building so much out of it. Practice is full of these paradoxes, full of these things that seem to contradict each other. But you know, when we when we begin to get a feel of it, we can really appreciate them. So on the one hand, these are called hindrances. On the one hand, unchecked, these qualities can really spin us around in life and lead us into all kinds of things that can make us struggle. And yet, on the other hand, they're somewhat insubstantial qualities. And they're qualities that very often we work with more by acknowledging, making space, uh, not resisting, not fighting them, not seeing them as so solid. Reminds me a bit of another um, paradox of practice that I personally think about quite a lot, really. Um, as if you... you familiar with the Buddha's teachings on, on metta and loving kindness. And it's a wonderful, beautiful teaching of how we you know, can wish this quality to ourselves, to benefactors and friends, to people that we 
don't know so well, to people we find difficult, and to all beings, this loving quality, kind, loving quality to all beings. And yet you also read, (laughs) in the Buddhist scriptures at times, the Buddha says, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he says something like, you know, be careful who you hang around with. (laughs) And that being with certain, certain kinds of people can sometimes, you know, bring in certain qualities in our own minds, you know. We hang around certain kind of people, then it creates conditions for particular states to arise in us. So he says, be careful. You know. And again, that can seem like a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, this loving kindness to all. And yet, on the other hand, this discernment. What, what serves me? What serves well-being here? What's a wise thing to do? we begin to be somewhat sceptical of the stories that these hindrances tell, it, tell us, we're not believing it when craving says, I need this, or aversion says, I must get rid of this, or doubt says, I'm no good. When we begin to see those things as just thoughts coming and going, we're not investing in them, we're not believing them so much opens up the opportunity for a different kind of seeing and different kinds of perspectives that are much more liberating, much more liberating. And uh, one of those is to, to see how much struggle in life is based on resistance, is based on wanting it to be different than how it is now. That struggle so often is not due to the way things are externally, which is how we may feel so often, but to do with that kind of habit of pushing and pulling at life, looking for something different, kind of incessant, waiting for a better moment that can be around. So we begin to see that it's that very pattern itself, that very uh, movement of the heart and mind. And it's not, a, not even really the cause of struggle, but is struggle. And we can begin to recognize and appreciate the times when, when that really stops, when that cools down. discussion that I very fondly remember from my time teaching in a college some years ago and talking about the nature of happiness and uh, as one of my students said to me um, I, I, don't really, I don't really know what makes me happy I couldn't quite put it like that but I do know that sometimes you know, I was just, just on the bus and I was just there and uh, wasn't really bothered about anything or uh, nothing was particularly troubling me, but I just felt I was just there and everything seemed okay. 
It wasn't that she'd won anything or beaten other people in something or come into a lot of money or, you know, been successful in something. But it's just, just enough. That feeling is just enough. And it's really useful to be aware and be open to when those times are around for us. Um, you know, in the, the Buddhist tradition, the end of suffering can sound very, um, very elevated, as if it's uh, something for you know someone else or something for um, something that may happen in decades or something that could be the result of being in a cave somewhere for, for many, many years. It could be almost too much, you know, what, what's that got to do with us here? And without uh, taking anything away from the real expansiveness of that, that vision, what that might be, without trying to say, yeah, well, we know what that is and we can pin it down, because that would be a shame too. <laughs> But just to think, can we get a taste of that? What are those tastes in our own life when it stills and cools down? And really valuing those moments, recognizing them, being open to them and let them nourish us. Those moments of simplicity. Moments of abundance. And also trusting that as we as we explore these teachings, as we begin to see what it's like to to be creative with these different patterns, these patterns of hindrances that come and go, as we begin to sense what it might be to recognize this basic okayness, a basic stillness. And trusting that that really will feed out into the wise action. So seeing clearly, but also the acting wisely. That this will flow out in our speech. Flow out in the way that we are with other people. And really is not just for us, but... It can't help. It can't just, you can't stop it. It can't help but flow out into the world. And just one, uh, one example, of course, of how, how that might be. I mean, the quality of presence that we're cultivating here, the ability to be with things that are pleasant, be with things that are difficult. Um, you know what that's like. If you bring that quality to listening to a friend, bring that quality to listening to a friend, you can really be there for them. You can really hear them. You know, you can hear what they're saying but also you can begin to sense what's going on for them. And that quality of presence is very healing for another person. 
very healing for another person. And we all know how lovely it is, don't we, to be heard, to be heard deeply. And so this this practice really in in very very real ways can can benefit others too. Let's just sit quietly together just for a couple of minutes or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.